HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This piece was brought to you by Roberta's, robertaspizza.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to HR and Happy Hour. It's five o'clock somewhere, and somewhere is Bushwick. I'm Kat Johnson, the communications director here at HRN, and I'm here with Katie Mosman Wadler, our executive director, and my co host. Hi, Hi Katie. Kat. Happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. We are also lucky to have with us more of the HRN team here in the studio. We have in the booth, as always, David Tadashore, who always gets the loudest applause. Where is oh, it? Oh, no, what happened? What? Where are they? Wake what? up, people. Uh, oh, oh, Get no. with it. Okay, well, um, save, save your applause to the end because we also have membership coordinator Hannah Ford in with us. Can I get some applause? Thank there you. There it is. There it Thank is. Thank you. Um, and we have our wonderful Julia Child fellow, Sarah Strong, in the studio as well. Hi, Sarah. Hi. Sarah wrote some great trivia for the end. I'm very excited. <laughs> I'm not peeking. And uh, also in the booth, uh, I believe Margaret Kelly. Yeah, our- she's there. Yes, she's here. Hi, everybody. Hey, I'm Margaret. Reading a script. <laughs> Hello. Working hard. Working hard. Um, I'm very, very excited about our guests today. Um, they're two people who I feel like inform a lot of what um, I'm reading and what I'm checking out. Um, we have Bill Addison, who is Eater's National Roving Critic. He's responsible for putting together the site's yearly 38 essential restaurant list. That's for the whole country. 38 essential restaurants for the whole country. And he... Um, Basically tells us the best eating the country has to offer. He has been a critic in Atlanta, Dallas, San Francisco, and he's in process of joining us here in Brooklyn. Kind of. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome, Bill. (laughs) Thank you. Um, We also have, um, returning to HR and Happy Hour, this is very exciting, we have Priya Krishna. She's a regular contributor to the New York Times, Bon Appetit, and the New Yorker. Um, to name a few, and she's also the author of Ultimate Dining Hall Hacks and her forthcoming cookbook that we are all very excited about, Indianish. Welcome, Priya. Hi. <laughs> We're very excited to have you back in the studio. 
So we're going to get into talking about food and writing and all the ways that they commingle. Um, but first, as always on HR and Happy Hour, we're going to talk about a few headlines because this week was our spring summer uh, season premiere. So we have some very exciting shows. So this week's Snacky Tunes talked to Shake Shack culinary director Mark Rosati about all things Shake Shack, from traveling the globe, opening new locations, to collaborating with top chefs on special burgers. Yum. They also had a live <laughs> in-studio performance from Brooklyn rock trio The Unders, featuring songs from their upcoming LP. This week on Eat Your Words, host Kathy Irway was speaking with Virginia Willis, James Beard award-winning author of five cookbooks about her latest book and why she thinks it's important to redefine Southern cuisine in today's divisive atmosphere. On What Doesn't Kill You, host Katie Kiefer spoke with Liz Crampton, a reporter for Morning Ag at Politico, about her experience covering the big players in animal ag and specifically a recent lawsuit um, that some... Uh, citizens in North Carolina won against Smithfield. They called them out for an industry-wide cleanup of poisonous manure pits. That was big news this week, and if you want to hear more about it, listen to What Doesn't Kill You. Cooking Issues had a Booker and Dax reunion featuring Jack Schramm, Robbie Nelson, Nicholas Bennett, Donnie Clutterbuck, Felipe, Derek Cram, and Stacey Swenson. The crew answered questions about all things BDX, and Dave previewed his forthcoming bar, Existing Conditions. I believe existing conditions has come forth, has it not? I, I think it maybe not officially. Yet. Okay, it's it, yeah, it henceforth cometh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very uh, excited about that bar. Me too. I miss the days of Booker Greenwich and Dax Village. Yeah, um, we're pretty excited. Uh, we have one event that we want to call some attention to this week, which is coming up on Wednesday, May 23rd. It's um, called Food Futures. It's at the iBeam Arts and Technology Center. And the subtitle is Using Art, Design, Biology, and Technology to Restore Our Damaged Food System and Maybe the Planet Too. A um, little bit of a mouthful, but it sounds really cool. This free event is from 6 to 8 p.m. at the iBeam space in Bushwick, right near the HRN office. And that's iBeam E-Y-E. For if you're picturing that in your mind's eye. This event is hosted by Stephanie Barden, who teaches in the food studies and interactive telecommunications programs at NYU, and it will feature presentations and food demos from her students about their research on the intersection of food and emerging technology. So be sure to RSVP at ibeam.org slash events. That's I-E-Y-E. Nice. All right, so we're going to turn back to our guests now, and I want to start off with Bill. I want to ask you... When did you become the national critic at Eater? Was anyone in that role before you? And what what was like your first year in that position like? All good questions. Um, it was Just rapid fire. <laughs> yeah, um, I started on April tenth, two thousand fourteen. Um, Eater and its sister sites, Curbed and Racked, had been bought by Vox Media the previous November, and they had given um, Eater the means to think big and dream big about what they wanted to do and um, what the the founders and the woman that became editor-in-chief, Amanda Clute, had um, dreamed up while they were eating at Canlis, a, a beautiful kind of timeless restaurant in Seattle. They were just talking and having a long dinner and they said what if we had someone who just like wandered the country and like covered it all like a national critic like not just somebody who goes on the road part of the year for like a best new restaurants package but like somebody who's just roving all the time and 
they hired me to do that. <laughs> um, so that first year was insane. You know, I had been, um, like you said, a city critic in Atlanta and Dallas and San Francisco, and I was a traditional city-based critic, which meant that I was writing reviews pretty much every week, and I would do occasional like long-form stories or roundups and stuff, but the heart and soul of what I did was restaurant criticism. So that first year, I was trying to like literally like wrap my brain and arms and taste buds around like what it means to eat in America right now, like all over America. So I was just like running constantly. I was on the road three weeks out of every month, which still is pretty much my schedule. And um, I'll tell you something funny, though. Like I started in April and I started in Los Angeles and then went to San Francisco and sort of I, w I don't like cold weather very much, which is one reason I'm a little hesitant about New York. And um, <laughs> and so I was kind of moving across the country, like following like the the <laughs> regions of America as they were warming up. But then I ended up just eating like strawberries and asparagus and rhubarb and like English peas, like the entire like for four Four months almost, like ending up in like New England where it was still like strawberry season, like in early j July. So I, yeah, I learned an awful lot that first year, but that was one big thing I learned. Was the National Eater 38 list something that was kind of on your plate from the beginning? Absolutely. It is, it was the, the pole star, the guiding light of what I was doing. And it still is. Um, we called my first year the road to the 38 and I wasn't actually writing restaurant reviews then so much as kind of rapid fire impressions of everywhere that I was eating. And my job has evolved so much in terms of the writing in, of what I do. Um, I was trying to write like city impression stories like to kind of um, ask a question about a city or investigate one aspect of it say how the Vietnamese um, dining culture in New Orleans has become so um, such an you know intrinsic part of the fabric of that that place and um, and then at some point I was like please can I like tackle like traditional restaurant criticism again and they let me do that. So that's absolutely part of the mix for places that are like big and and um, talked about, but also places that sometimes are essential and and really like special to their community. I'll just say like so. For example, I reviewed Major Domo, David Chang's new restaurant in Los Angeles recently, and it's just like very Gonzo and very David Chang. But I think the most exciting restaurant that he's opened in years and years. But then also last year, I'm j I was just in Chicago and I'm thinking about a beautiful restaurant I just love there called Mitokaya Antoheria that um, is a, a chef who she cooked with her um, family for a long time and cooked for other people. Her, her parents owned a Mexican restaurant and then she cooked for other chefs. And now she does this, um, uh, her name is Diana Davia, and she like opened her own place in Logan Square and it's just like the food of... It's just like what she knows, and it's so beautiful. So I, I just feel really lucky that I get to run all over the country doing this. And tell us about who was on the list this past year and who, like, the restaurant of the year was very exciting. Yeah, the restaurant of the year, I was, I just, um, so I'm, um, I lived in Atlanta off and on for 20 years. So it's the, I'm from Maryland originally, but Atlanta is the place that I think of most as home. And so um, the gray is in Savannah, Georgia. So I always kept my eye on, on that restaurant. And um, it opened right around the same time that I 
started this job. And so it's a place that I've kept my eye on. Mashama Bailey uh, was a chef who cooked here in New York for a long time under Gabrielle Hamilton at Prune. And um, the space is just this amazing, spectacular. It was um, for much of mid-century America, a Greyhound Depot that was segregated and it closed in the 60s, if I'm not mistaken. And um, the owner, Dano, redid it in this beautiful way that kind of honors that period of architecture, but it doesn't in any way kind of evoke like the bad vibes of that era. And it's just, you know, worth noting that... Um, that Mashama Bailey is an African-American woman um, and she lived, she grew up um, in Savannah for a time. And so her food reflects the place, but is also very much her own. She takes a lot of um, inspiration these days from Edna Lewis, the woman who wrote three beautiful, beautiful cookbooks and really woke uh, America up to the pleasures of Southern cooking uh, beyond its cliches. And, um, yeah, it was just so wonderful to kind of see that restaurant evolve to this place where I was like, yeah, like everyone should be eating here. I want everyone to come here and know this place and, and understand its narrative. And, and that's why it was uh, an easy pick for me to name it restaurant of the year. It was very exciting when I saw oh, that. Thanks. Yeah, I love Yay. that restaurant. I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah. Um, Priya, I want to turn to you because last time you were on the show, you were hard at work at your book in Danish. And we talked all about your mom and her influence on the book. But for people who haven't heard that episode, would you mind recapping a little bit about the inspiration behind the cookbook? Sure. Um, the book is basically about my upbringing in suburban Dallas, Texas, uh, and the food that my mom cooked for me, which was not traditionally Indian because my mom did not learn to cook in India. She learned to cook in America where she combined the, the Indian flavors that she remembered of her grandmother and uh, the cooking techniques that she'd seen on PBS shows. And she was an airline software engineer, so traveling around the world, those flavors. So, you know, my mom made our sag paneer, but instead of paneer, she would use feta cubes. And she would make pizza, but instead of a traditional pizza crust, she'd use roti because it gets really crispy and charred. And she's just she just has all of these tricks up her sleeve. And she's such an intuitive, ingenious cook who I think if she didn't want to, you know, prove all of the people in India who told her she shouldn't work wrong and get a job as an engineer, she would have done something in food. I think she would have been like an award-winning recipe developer or something right now had she not been an engineer. But she's also a great engineer. Yes. <laughs> we talked about that too. Um, <laughs> she has a full-time... People are like, oh, so she must be retired. And I'm like, no, she wrote 100 recipes while having a full-time job as an engineer. <laughs> so talk a little bit about the the testing process of the recipes and then sh the shooting of cookbook, which you did in Texas. Um, so I am not, I don't really have much of a recipe development or testing background. So it was all completely brand new to me. I ended up just reaching out to a bunch of people who, who, who do this for a living. Um, Allison Roman, Julia Tertian in particular were like incredible resources and they basically taught me that, along with Erlen Beaumont, um, who I worked with at Lucky Peach, they basically taught me how to write and edit recipes and just gave me like this one month crash course um, and answered all of my questions very patiently. And then I went home for a month, tested all 100 recipes with my mother. Like I would test four recipes. My mom would come home, taste them, tell me everything that was wrong with them. 
we'd revise, we'd cook another two, three recipes, and then my mom would sit on her iPad and write more recipes (laughs) so that I had stuff to test the next day. Um, it was insane. I can't say people always, people are like, Oh, it must've been such a fun bonding experience. It was so stressful. Um, it, but, but the recipes ended up turning out really well. And then I was lucky enough to get 150 people to test each of the recipes, um, including you, Kat. Um, and I was just like so thrilled by the response and how people were so eager to test the recipes and people who continue to make them over and over again, um, and so I, you know, each of the recipes has been tested by my mom, my, me, three friends, and then edited by these recipe developers that I really trust. So hopefully they work. <laughs> See, I've never had a close friend like or someone I know well make, write a cookbook. And so I thought, oh, this must be like a thing that people do when they write a cookbook. They ask all their friends to test recipes. How great is that? And then I asked a few other people who are working on books and they're like, oh, no, I don't do that. I have a professional recipe tester. And I'm like... Well, it's not only professional recipe testers that are going to be making your food. So I thought that it was really cool that you did that. Actually, the feedback I got from a lot of recipe writers was to not have professionals really? test the recipes. because She was like, at some point, they're too good of cooks and they kind of overthink it. You mm-hmm. want someone who's like a total amateur kind of asking the stupid questions that mm-hmm. you wouldn't think about otherwise. And yeah. it ended up being super helpful. Yeah. And I'm the milk toast recipe that you gave me was <laughs> awesome. So good. Um, Priya, I have a question about this. Did your friends who were testing send you, like, photos of the dish every time they made it? And, like, how often did the photo look like what you expected? Good question. Well, I was always really excited. But then when I showed my mom, she'd be like, no, they did this completely (laughs) wrong. Oh, no. (laughs) But my mom is like, this is my mom. She's a perfectionist. She, like, doesn't, like, if something wasn't, like, cubed perfectly, she'd be like, that cube is is not right. You need to clarify. (laughs) But, like, the thing is, ultimately, like, you can give instructions. People do what they want. They cut stuff Mm -hmm. in the way that they want. They use a blender instead of food processor. So I tried to write the recipes in such a way that they were forgiving, as forgiving as possible. And they are actually very forgiving. And I feel like I repeat that over and over again. Indian food is like one of the most forgiving cuisines. You can add, subtract, more vegetables, less vegetables. It all still kind of works out. Was there like any most shocking or surprising result that you saw? Um, Well, one of the salads... Well, no, no, actually, this is the most surprising. I have this one recipe, which I think is, like, pretty straightforward. It's just green beans that you toss in chickpea, in, like, uh, chickpea flour. And it's sort of, like, you basically make – it's similar to, like, a tempura, but it's, like – it's combined with chickpea flour and ajwine, which kind of tastes like oregano. So there's sort of these, like, oregano and, like, flour-coated green beans. Like, they're very delicious and super easy. And one of my friend's grandmothers tested – that recipe and she sent me an email and it just said hi Priya I wanted to let you know that I tried the chickpea flour green beans and they were disgusting oh (laughs) no oh no and so I contacted my three other friends who were testing that recipe and they're like no they were great I like ate the whole pan I was like I guess just you know some people aren't gonna like every recipe she like didn't tell you before and she's like I just really hate green beans right (laughs) don't know how to help you you know yeah, she, and she it said nothing else. It was like they were disgusting. Like, <laughs> bosh. No, didn't didn't give you any other feedback. No well, other. Fe- she didn't even fill out like, the Google the form. form. Yeah. She was just like they were disgusting. That is my only thought. 
Yeah. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, I also want to talk about you did. You're doing a column in Bon Appetit um, mm-hmm. monthly leading up to the cookbook mm-hmm. release, and um, I think my favorite one so far has been the doll chart. Can mm-hmm. you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So the whole goal of the column is to sort of, and and the book is to make Indian food seem like a really accessible, like everyday weeknight category of cooking, which is what it is for me and billions of other people. Um, and so that instant pot doll chart is a result of me getting an instant pot, not really being excited about it, and then making doll in the instant pot and realizing that when it comes to, like with Indian food, the instant pot is honestly a game changer in the way that it like concentrates flavors. Cause I mean, Indian cuisine pressure cookers are very common mm-hmm. and you usually make doll in a pressure cooker and it doesn't come out the same way in a crock pot or just on a stove top. And the instant pot's the only thing that really like captures that like pressure cooker magic, but I'm terrified of pressure cookers. And so <laughs> l- being able to make it like, is this one doll, which is masseur doll. It's sort of like a chubby buttery doll. Like it just came out so velvety smooth that like I almost cried when I tried it for the first time. And I knew that I had to make one of the columns about how to make doll in an instant pot. And Bon Appetit came with the idea to make these like choose your own adventure charts, which I yeah. think have been really helpful. Yes. I have it bookmarked <laughs> and I go back to it and I do it every week or so. Um, it's so easy and so good. Um, really quick, I want to ask you about your first book, Dining Hall Hacks, because I don't know if we talked about that last time you were on, but tell us a little bit about what that book is about. Sure. Um, so that book is, so when I, when I came to college, uh, I went to school in Hanover, New Hampshire. It was very rural. I knew I, I was interested in writing about food, but there were like five restaurants on campus, so I wasn't sure how I was going to write about food. Um, but I, my friends always commented on how when I would go to the dining halls, I'd always like grab one thing from the salad station, like one thing from the sandwich station and like come up with my own sort of creative combination. And so I pitched this column, only seniors were allowed to pitch columns, but just like, I was just that audacious freshman who was like, I'm going to pitch a senior column as a (laughs) freshman. I pitched a column called the DDS detective and DDS stands for Dartmouth dining services. And every week I would go into a dining hall and come up with like, you know, I learned, I figured out how to make like a deconstructed sweet potato pie using crackling oat bran and like sweet potatoes from the grill bar. I had a recipe for this like, um, like this like banana bread pudding that was, that's actually still extremely delicious. I did like Thai chicken lettuce wraps. You take like the Thai chicken from the stir fry station and then like big lettuce leaves from the salad bar. And then like you make a little peanut sauce. Um, And I... So that that column ended up being like very weirdly popular. Um, like someone dressed up as the DDS detective for Halloween. Like they <laughs> you had know you like, made it when uh-huh. they had like a trench coat with fruit attached to them. <laughs> and I was like in a frat party and I saw this and I was like, who are you supposed to be? And he was like, I'm the DDS detective. And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> um, and so from there, from there, I uh, Googled how to write a book proposal. And I wrote a book proposal about for a for a uh, book called Ultimate Dining Hall Hacks um, because I had also gotten hired by my school's dining hall as a result of the column and they let me travel all across the country with them like researching Mm -hmm. dining halls and how dining halls function. I basically became their marketing manager just like figuring out how to communicate with students and come up with like dishes that students would really like and connect with. So I had this like wealth of information on how dining halls across the country function came up with this book idea that's like here's how to hack your dining hall no matter where no matter what kind of dining hall it is um and I 
literally like went with my dad to the post office when I was home over my senior year winter break. And we mailed out 50 book proposals to 50 different publishing companies. And shockingly, people started responding. And now this is like hilarious that I did this. So I'm like, like if I like telling people now they're like, that was such a dumb thing to do. Why would you do that? Like people don't expect, expect it. But it just got like plucked from some slush piles and yeah. Workman Publishing was like, yeah, we, we would totally publish this. And they did. There are a lot of people graduate from high school every year and they have to have a lot of graduation gifts. And that's like the perfect yeah. thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We saw another one in the mail that shall not be named. Um, but oh. it was not as cool as yours, Priya. It was questionable at best. Um, Uh, I I lived in Hanover for six years and no way. Maybe I saw you at the India queen once or twice. Um, but, uh, so the options in Hanover are like pretty limited, right? So there's like, there were at the time I was there, there were two Indian restaurants. One was a dive. One was like pretty good. And then Mm -hmm. there was on and off a Thai place. And then like, a few other things here and there and then like canoe club and you know like a diner Mm -hmm. um so i'm curious to know like what do you think about how um college towns are being influenced by student dining options or are they and i don't know if you've been back recently but like are you seeing changes in offerings of small towns in general where like you think they're getting more exciting, more inspired, or is it sort of just like you get what you get? No, I honestly, I, I find college town dining options like so like, at, at their most exciting that they've ever been. And in fact, like I find myself most inspired as a writer when I travel outside of the city. Like I went to Salt Lake City and I found like there's actually these like pockets of immigrant communities really thriving and like making delicious food. And I, and I found I found like some really great stories while I was there and I don't know, like these little, I love finding like amazing food in these little small unexpected towns, like in Hanover, New New Hampshire, for example, there's now a gelato place called Mm -hmm. Murano and it's really good. What I, I think it might be like top five best gelato I've ever had. They're just like these Italians who just wanted to move to rural New Hampshire and they made this, this amazing, I mean, it's, it's really, really good gelato. Hmm. Um, one of my favorite restaurants in the entire country, it's called Cloudland Farms, is right outside Hanover, New Hampshire. It's in Woodstock, and it's just like this adorable farm. You bring your own wine, and they serve you the the dinner, whatever whatever is like from the farm. They just serve, and I've had like ten meals, and every single meal has been a total knockout. And everyone I bring there, and it's like forty five dollars for a prefix. It's like the best deal ever. Um, in just in general, the Upper Valley of New Hampshire, Vermont area just has some of my favorite, favorite restaurants. And I think, you know, the same can be said, like Ann Arbor has so many good restaurants. Providence, Rhode Island is home to so many good restaurants. I mean, I think college towns are, are really exciting places to eat. And do you think there's interplay between college dining services and the area restaurants? No, I don't think mm-hmm. so. Mm-hmm. I think they're pretty separate. Most are either privately owned or run by like a Sodexo or an Aramark. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. This makes me think about speaking of like more rural areas. Bill, you, I don't know if you're, you purposely do this, but you do focus a lot on cities just by nature of where the restaurants are on your list. Do you get to do much, you know, like going out to smaller towns or rural areas? And if you do, is there any kind of region that sticks out in your mind as a great place to eat? 
I mean, I'd say certainly New England, since we're on that yeah. subject. Um, there's, um, gosh, there's so many. There's a Thai restaurant called Long Bond that I love, and I think it's in Camden. I'm not... Uh, say it Long Green. Long Green, thank you. Long Green, so good. Um, and the Lost Kitchen, um, which is like the toughest reservation. If you're one of the, lucky enough right, to one get of the to toughest. I I had a friend who writes about um, restaurants in Portland, Maine, and mm. he scored a reservation there through their you know like they've changed it. They've changed it. it was a I think it was a lottery system this year, and he didn't get in. But they used to do this thing where you could start calling at like midnight, and he like <laughs> literally called until two a.m. Wow. to like leave his message to like get called back. Yeah. Um, but I don't know, you know, I do, um, it's been nice cause I do these guides, these regional guides that we're slowly working through America. So we started in the South and we did New England and kind of the Great Lakes region of the Midwest since the Midwest is so huge. We did Texas earlier this year. It was so fun for me. I, I you know, this is like the deep pleasure again, while, while you all were like facing the deep freeze here, I yeah. was. It was kind of cold a little in Texas, but not like not New York cold. Like, <laughs> oh, poor me. Is it fifty two today? Yeah, let, yeah. Let me get my tiny violin. <laughs> right, exactly. I'll go stand um, by a pit <laughs> um, for some barbecue. Yeah, but it was so. Yeah, it was just a pleasure to like wander through, you know, Texas and do. I did hit some some small plate, like check out the, the Texas 38 list. And there's stuff on there, certainly from all the major cities. Uh, shout out to San Antonio, which I think is not a, obviously one not of my a favorite f- food city. Yeah. It's such a good food mm. city. There's a carnitas place that is new there that I'm kind of obsessed with right now called carnitas Lonja L O N J A. Um, and yeah, now I'm wandering through California. So fun. How best. much, this question is for both of you, but we'll start with Bill. Like, do you pinch yourself every day? And like, did you, when did you know that you wanted to be a food writer? And like, can you even believe it that this is your job? It's so cool. Uh, I mean, I, uh, so it's a little bit of a long story. I'll try and condense it, but I went to school for singing and then acting. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. And then uh, <laughs> I was only mostly in Boston. I went to Berkeley college of music and then I transferred to Emerson and got a degree in, in nice. acting. Um, but I was still most passionate about the singing. Like I just thought, I don't, you know, I'd be Justin Timberlake or something. <laughs> even though he wasn't around then, but like, that was the kind of trajectory. Like first you start recording albums, then you break into film. Oh, such modest ambitions for myself. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, I just ended up wandering a lot in my twenties. I was a little like rootless and aimless. My parents were horrified and, um, when I started settling down in Atlanta, I was doing business writing, and I, but I was just obsessed with food. I worked in restaurants a lot. And so as I was approaching my 30th year, I decided, like, I wanted, this is what I wanted to try and do. It's a long story, but I figured it out. And, yeah, I guess I'm super um, grateful every single day because restaurant criticism is kind of an endangered species in America mm-hmm, as mm-hmm. publications don't have the budgets to support both a salary and the expense budget needed to do the job like ethically and cleanly to go visit multiple times that we see less and less critics, particularly alt weeklies. I'm like just devastated about like the loss of alt weeklies. Either they're, they close or they are just a shell of what they used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I feel really thankful. Thank you, eater. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so 
when when did you say you moved to Atlanta? How long ago? Uh, I first moved to Atlanta for a year in '95, right after like I tanked in New York the first time, uh-huh. and I was there for just a year, and then I was like, all right, I'm going back, and then <laughs> I suffered for another year, and then ended up wandering, and um, and I moved back there in '99, and I was I started my food my restaurant criticism career there in 2002. I was there until 2006. Came back in 2009 and then just sold my house last year. Wow. What were some of the early uh, reviews that you did? The first review that I did, you know, I didn't have any journalism experience. And this guy who was a columnist there, I sort of like gently stalked him at the Starbucks where he (laughs) was very public about hanging out. And I would like just, you know, kind of struck up a little friendship with him. And he suggested me for this role that they needed so um so they sent me to the far suburbs to be you know kind of be like if you know if you like totally bomb this it's kind of okay because you know no one cares too much about this restaurant and so it was uh a place called the roasted garlic in mm. entire restaurant and you know i was like a disciple of ruth reichel like not in person but i Same. was yeah i was just like so into her reviews and before i became a restaurant critic i had a big binder and i'd like read them all the time and like and even so i didn't go to journalism school but i like would literally like study ruth's reviews and be like <laughs> i get it like she tells a story up top mm-hmm. like it's something good that kind of pulls you in aka the lead and then like you have this section where like after she sort of ropes you in like she gives you the basics like the rundown the who what when where why how i remember from high school that's the nut graph section and then like you talk about the food and you go through you say what's good what's not good you try and like use some cool metaphors and then you have like an like an exit that's sort of like maybe comes back to the top or like says something kind of snappy kicker I was like, there, Ruth. I went to the Ruth Rice. I did. I went to the Ruth Rice School of Restaurant Criticism. So, if that's like journalism school in a nutshell, thank you. You just saved all of our listeners thousands of dollars. Yeah, and and then you had the Book of Ruth to back you up. I had the Book of Ruth. So I just followed the Book of Ruth, and then the the editor was like, "Yeah, pretty good for someone who's ever done this before." And uh, they kept giving me more and more assignments. I And I did it for nine months freelance. And then the food editor put in her notice. And she was like, I told my bosses, you know, way more about food than I ever will. And <laughs> I told them to hire you. And they did. How was the food at the roasted garlic? Oh, the food at the roasted garlic. The whole thing was that, like, they've served such enormous portions that, like, every table was stacked with to-go boxes. So that was my little lead. Like, Uh you know, I mean, that was kind of the story that I found. But, I mean, it was just, like, gargantuan, um, overwrought comfort food. Did they serve sun-dried tomatoes? (laughs) In like heaps, yeah, right, yeah. Like like that was like, yeah. You didn't even need to like. It wasn't even like an extra charge. They just scattered it over like rose petals. They bring out the pepper grinder, the cheese, yeah, the whole thing. Tomatoes, they throw them at you. Yeah, I mean, Atlanta was such a. This was before like the Southern Renaissance. It's so different. It's so different. Yeah, I mean, and I was always like, "Where's the Southern food?" That was an early interest of mine and so I, when I left and I came back Atlanta I had a good job at the Dallas Morning News there's a Dallas theme today on this show yeah. and um, and I wasn't necessarily ready to leave I'd only been there for two years but 
the critic pool in America, you know, it's such a weird, small role. And, and so they're like, what, four dozen or so across the country. So if you get offered a job in a city you love and you don't take it, like if you stay in this career, you're not getting back to that city anytime mm-hmm. soon. So Atlanta Magazine offered me the job as food editor and restaurant critic. And I went back and I went to... Uh, Cakes and Ale, this chef Billy Allen, who mm. I really love, um, who had worked at Watershed, which was like the defining Southern, next generation Southern restaurant. Scott Peacock was the chef there, very influenced by Edna Lewis, who I mentioned earlier. And so Billy Allen was doing beautiful stuff at Cakes and Ale in this restaurant, Holman and Finch, mm-hmm. like was like a Southern gastropub when it was having that exact moment. And the bourbons were like cool and small, you know producers and I was just like okay it's happening Mm -hmm. I'm coming back yeah I'm glad I did good um let's take a really quick break and then we'll come back we'll ask a couple more questions and we'll play some trivia be right back Hey, Food Radio listeners. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie, and I'm really excited to share that we're launching a brand new show. Meat and Three is HRN's weekly food news roundup. Tune in for a deep dive and three tasty shorts every Friday evening. It's 15 minutes, so you can listen while you wait for your pizza. This week, the fight for universal free lunch in New York City public schools isn't over yet. I'm overburdened. I'm overworked. I don't get staffed when people are out. Plus, Dana Cowan, former editor of Food & Wine magazine and host of HRN's Speaking Broadly, catches up with Valerie Lomas, the winner of the Great American Baking Show's Derailed Season 3. Discover how a Danish brewery is motivating people to get fit and hear Alison Roman speak to the highs and lows of her cookie recipe going viral. Every time I see anyone in a social setting, that's generally the first thing they ask me is, how are the cookies? Be better informed and wildly inspired by the stories and people you hear on Meet and 3. Find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. My name is Brandon Boyd, co-owner of Roberta's, a super duper awesome place. Roberta's is a very, 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 very proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. We're also super awesome. Thank you, Heritage. Welcome back to HR and Happy Hour. Don't don't you mean thank you, Roberta's? Oh, I forgot. Thanks, Roberta's and Brandon. Brandon Hoy. Especially Brandon. <laughs> the the Brandon Hoy. The Brandon. Um, Priya, I have one more question for you before we jump into trivia. Um, because... Bill, you you kind of have like a focus of what you're writing on. You're the national critic. You're talking restaurants, about restaurants, 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 restaurants. <laughs> Priya, you you write about a lot of different topics. How do you come up with what you're going to write about next, and and how do you kind of juggle working with many publications that publish your work? Um, 
if we're being perfectly honest, the person who sends me the most story ideas that I end up using is my father. Really? Also, as a full, he's like full time working in real estate, but just like is so friendly and talks to everyone and finds these fascinating people and connects me with them. And I want to say, like, out of all the stories I've done in the Times, like 90% have been my dad coming to me and being like, I think that someone should do a story about this person. Like his favorite Indian ice cream place I wrote about, the Diwali festival he goes to every year. Um, these two Hawaiian guys who we struck up a conversation with in Salt Lake City. I like wrote a profile of them. I'm like, Dad, you like need to get some kind of kickback from all these people <laughs> that you're like becoming best friends with. Um, so it, re- I mean, it really is like I have all of these friends in all these different places, and people send me emails, my family, my friends. Like, I don't know. I I also just like constantly have my notebook out and I'm always sending myself emails with story ideas like any like little trigger that I that I get anywhere I will be like maybe that's a story and I'll always kind of follow it up even if it's something weird like I (laughs) uh someone was telling me about the like favorite restaurant of the Kardashians in LA uh and I know there's like I know there's something there. I'm like mm. following the story, but it's just like I don't know, just like certain things just like trigger this this like alarm alarm bells will go off. And it's so funny like you were saying like do you think this is like a dream job? Cuz I mean it is amazing and I love being able to like follow my nose wherever it takes me and having the resources to do so, but like more so than like Bill getting to like eat at all these great restaurants, like much of my job is like going to tiny cities, staying in airport hotels Hmm. and like Hmm. write, like writing, like transcribing things on planes. Like Mm -hmm. there is like 90% very unglamorous (laughs) aspects of my job. It's not a lot of eating. Like I, I think I've just decided that my thing is more reporting than it is like eating and enjoy. Although like I, I do get to do a lot of that as well. Um, but like I just get, once I, come up with a story idea I just become obsessed with it like I become obsessed with my interview topic my interview my interview subject I like will just talk about them nonstop to anyone and everyone like I you know I did debate in high school and it's really about like like a topic we have one topic every year and you have to become an expert on the topic and you have to do tons of research and so I feel like that sort of research mentality is really ingrained in me nice I edit photo. I'm my own photographer for this job. I edit photos on flights uh. while you're transcribing. Well, that's a different thing than most uh, food writers, I would think, is they get they send their photographer after. Right. Yeah. I mean, because I have such a crazy job, it would be hard for yeah. a photographer to keep yeah. up with the, mm-hmm. the Michigas. So I yeah. just, you know, um, yeah, I do it myself. It works. I like it. One more question. I feel like we'd be remiss if we didn't mention that the James Beard Awards just happened recently. Do you guys have any thoughts on any of the winners this year? It was kind of a big year for awards. Um, well, Bill, Bill, aren't you like the head of the yeah, <laughs> awards committee? Yes, I myself this question. Oh, Bill can't yeah. say anything. My bad. Thanks, Bill. Bill, I thought you did a, <laughs> you did a, I thought you did a really great job. Um, I, I'm like so sad that I've never been to any of Eduardo Jordan's restaurants, but way back when Rachel Kong did a profile of him in Lucky Peach, 
like before he had sort of his 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 star had fully taken off and I've just been like completely fascinated and like kind of have like a little minor crush on him as well since then. Um, and it's just, I don't know, it's just like I food that's like so driven by like identity and your evolution as a human is the food that fascinates me the most. And it seemed like a lot of the winners had that in common, like do like making food that sort of speaks to their identity and, and who they are and where they've come from and where they're going. Um, I mean, those are the food stories that I always mm-hmm. find the most interesting anyways. So yeah, it was, it was exciting. I mean, it's awards are just, you kind of have to just like put them into perspective because mm-hmm. it's just like, there's only, you can only, the Quinny can only go to certain restaurants. There's obviously just like darlings of the food world that are going to get nominated no matter what. It's like a highly political process. Um, but I thought you guys did a really good job. Thanks. Um, I wanted to sh- also shout out Corsha Wilson, who hosts the show yes. here, wrote a great piece for Eater, came out yesterday talking, I thought it's a great piece talking about how it seemed to kind of shift this year to really recognize uh, American food in a greater way. And in the past, it's been more focused on like American, uh, European styles of cooking. I thought that was really great. Definitely. Well. Bill, were you going to say, add anything else? I was just going to say quickly that... Um, Eduardo Jordan that Priya mentioned has two restaurants in Seattle, Solari and June Baby. He won uh, Best Chef Pacific Northwest Mm -hmm. for um, Solari and Best New Restaurant of the Year for June Baby, which is him cooking the food of his childhood from Florida and Georgia. And critics are supposed to be uh, stoic and impervious but I will say that I cried big salty tears Aww. when he won Best New Restaurant. I don't know until they're they're sure. they're uh, announced. I'm I'm just sitting there like everyone else. So I was uh, a little hoarse afterwards. Oh. And Highlands Bar and Grill and Delester Miles. And I mean, that, it was a really really it exciting was a year. Good year. It was. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, with that, uh, we're gonna move on to trivia. We always end our show with trivia and our theme. Um, Theme this week, since we have an anonymous critic in our midst, <laughs> the theme is anonymity. And so we're going to talk about some spies. Wow. Okay. All right. So question number one. Which famous children's author spent time as a spy in a D.C.-based British spy ring? Can you, wait, can you repeat the question? Which, which famous children's author spent time as a spy in a DC-based British spy ring? I'll give you a hint. He imagined what it would be like to live inside of a giant peach. Roald Dahl? Yes. Wow. Nice. That's, I didn't know that. <laughs> that's a fun fact. Yeah. Uh, next question. Which government agency has a page on their website dedicated to Julia Child? Uh, the CIA, because she was a predecessor. She worked for the predecessor for the CIA. Correct. <laughs> Bill is just creamy. I didn't know that I like, could be you good at this. I'm usually terrible at trivia. Okay. This is a team sport, guys. Okay. Um, okay. Which author, who was best known for creating one of the world's most famous spies, also wrote Chitty Chitty Bang Bang? No, I don't want you to remember Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. I mean, I remember that like flying bed, right? Yeah. That's all I remember. And the scary Pretty witch. memorable. Is it Ian something? It is. Ian Fleming. Yes. There you go. There you go. Teamwork. It's <laughs> the dream work. All right. This one gets a little harder. 
This what? is really hard. I feel like this should be here. Jeopardy I'm gonna. Style. I'm, I'm gonna flip this. Jeez. I'm gonna flip this. Okay. <laughs> Too hard. This this famous entity is a decentralized international hacktivist group. That's easy. <laughs> help we'll us, help Dave. Them out, David. <laughs> Anonymous. There we go. Uh, <laughs> All right. Next question. Which American botanist is known as the food spy for sending home seeds or cuttings of over 200,000 fruits, vegetables, and grains from around the world? Thomas Jefferson? No. no. I've never heard of this guy. Okay. This is probably... Jefferson did, like... Bring over, but not around the stuff, world. But yeah, yeah. No, probably also before like it was illegal. Was <laughs> jerk, you know, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't have a hint for this because I don't know him. His name is David Fairchild. Hmm, Food spy. Mm-hmm. Maybe that could be a story. Does that say Food that spy. on his business card? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. David Fairchild. Food spy. Food spy. Mm-hmm. Food spy. Okay, last question. How many installments of the Spy Kids movie franchise are there? Oh, there's three, right? No. Let's see. Spy Kids. Spy Kids 2. Spy Kids. There's Spy Kids 3. There was Game Over, which was the... This is just embarrassing. Am I embarrassing myself right now? A little bit. This is all you. Uh, Oh, oh, Spy Kids. Spy Kids 2 was the Island of Lost Dreams. Spy Kids 3 was... I really love the Spy Kids movies. Bring it. 3, Game Over. Oh, was it Spy Kids 4D? Was yes, it, it is. Yes. Four, is it four? I th- it's four. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there are two people That's... in here nodding their heads and the rest of us have jaws on the floor. <laughs> 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 you know, spy kids. Um, I think Will was looking at like a list of the best spy movies you can stream online and like he said he was reading his like spy kids and I was like, really? It's like they say it's very good. It's really, they're really, they're good. Don't so knock them till you, I mean, spy kids one and two. Maybe don't do three and four, uh-huh. but one and two uh-huh. are great. Also, like t- to the Spy Kids movies credit, like back then when I was watching it, just a family of color in like a major mainstream movie was not something I, I felt really inspired by that. I was like, oh, like a Hispanic family, like maybe they'll do a spy movie about an Indian family. They never did that, but <laughs> not yet. It was, you know, it was it was very exciting. <laughs> Directors, if you're listening, <laughs> we need Spy Kids 5. You need this. I love it. Well, Spy Kids 4 was in 2011, so you definitely are still in the picture. <laughs> I think it's more like like Spy Kids young to medium adults. <laughs> spy That's Kids true. take New York. <laughs> also, the guy who played Junie is married to someone very high profile. I can't remember who. Yes, Megan Trainer. Yes. Yes. yes, he's married oh, to Megan Trainer. Mm-hmm. Is this bonus oh, trivia? Hold on, I have, I have one. I have one. Have you guys been watching Westworld? Don't tell me. I'm obsessed. It's obsessed. Not, super, super obsessed. I swear to God. Okay, obsessed. but do you like this? I guess I knew it in the back of my head, but Hector. do you remember who Evan Rachel Wood used to be engaged to? Who? Hannah knows. Hannah knows. Marilyn Manson. Yeah, Whoa. dude. Wait, actually, yes, I did. Yeah. That so is Dolores, Marilyn Manson. Creepo of the universe. Yeah. I mean, he's like not a bad of a guy. <laughs> you know what? Grimes he's, he's and Elon smart. Musk oh. are the new Marilyn <laughs> Manson. Hashtag gross. This is the gossip section of Heritage Radio Network Happy Hour. You see Elon Musk tweeted like, I don't know if you guys knew, but I'm really pretty weird. It's time the world knows how weird I am. <laughs> he's so edgy. On that note, 
Okay. Give us money, Elon. That's this, our show. This has been HR and Happy Hour. Thank you so much to our guests, Bill Addison and Priya Krishna. Come back anytime. We'll play more spy trivia. <laughs> Thank you. That devolves Thanks. into pop culture news. <laughs> Bill, can you sing us out? Oh my gosh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know. You can't make me do that. Wait, I don't do know. it. No pressure. No pressure. Oh, um, okay. Um. Hang on to the world as it spins around. Just don't let the spin get you down. See you next week. Let's get out of here. (laughs) Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events subscribe to our newsletter enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org connect with us on facebook instagram and twitter at heritage underscore radio heritage radio network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer more delicious place and we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. HRN Happy Hour is powered by Simplecast. Simplecast is a popular hosting and analytics platform that allows podcasters to easily host and publish to apps like Apple Podcasts. If you have a podcast or are looking to create your very first, check it out. Try it for free and save half off your first three months at simplecast.com forward slash heritage.